Man, there's a, there's a whole lot of new faces. Good to see you guys tonight. Glad you're with us. And good to see some faces I haven't seen in a while. Matt and Emily and Logan, it was fun to see you. And uh, just fun to see people I haven't seen in a long time. Some of my old roomies. And good to see you guys. Uh, some of you don't know Matt and Jess, who just had a kid, but a lot of you guys do. One of the tremendous things, one of the fun things... I guess that we enjoy about our job here is that there's kids running around. (laughs) It's kind of a neat deal. If you look around and you hear some crying tonight, that's okay. I taught at a church in uh, Vaughn on Sunday, and there's a kid running up and down the aisles, and his mom came and apologized after, and I said, hey, that's that's perfectly fine. We're okay with that. We like kids. And so uh, Brandy and anyone, all you guys who have kids, we love that. And uh, we're great that Matt and Jess had one. And uh, most of you guys know Andy whom I work with. Uh, often we get asked, hey, do you run this? Or what's the deal? Who's, who's in charge here? And the answer is we are. And uh, not, in a, not in a lording over you sense, but uh, not I or Andy, but we uh, joined together as a team. And awful grateful to have that guy, to be on a team with that guy. And a lot of the kids you see running around are his. He's got two and now three. Uh, three Jude who Jen left with a little bit ago. But I love kids, and it's fun to see kids running around. So uh, a lot of you guys are too young for kids, but if you got kids, bring them. Bring them with. We love them. Let them cry. Let them cry. Um, a lot of you guys know who've been here before. We're going through a series this year called Roots. Roots. Or uh, maybe more fully, Roots and Fruits. And what we've done is we've studied the root or the doctrine or... Uh, just the teaching one week, and then we've transitioned into the fruit of that the next week, and we've kind of done that back and forth. We started with the introduction where Andy and I both talked, then uh, I taught on the root of Scripture, and he taught on the fruit. No, he taught on the root of Scripture, and I taught on the fruit, and then we did the same thing with prayer, and then as uh, Nate mentioned, we went on that advance, and boy, was that fun. I had a great time being with you guys and relaxing and reading Scripture and drinking cocoa and and uh, we just had a great time. It was a fun weekend. And sorry if you did, seriously, sorry if you did show up here and we didn't have Cross Life. It feels like we haven't been here for a while. So it's good to see you all again. And now we, we continue with the Root series, but we step into a new part. We're going to spend three weeks on God the Father. Two weeks on the Root of who is God. And then a week on that Andy and I will do together on the fruit of God. How does God... Uh, the doctrine of God, theology proper, how does that affect the way we live and act and think? And how does that affect when you're down at MSU or here at NBC or in the workforce or home with your folks? Or, By the way, it's neat to see some folks here tonight. Uh, bring your folks if they're in town with you. That's a, that's a sweet deal. We love that. But that, how does that affect the way you live? But I want to, I don't make a disclaimer here these root weeks where we just study doctrine, I don't want you to get caught up in thinking that these don't have practical implications on the way you live. Um, Pastor Dave said something in an evening service here a couple weeks ago. He said most of us, and Brooke and I have been talking about, most of us are educated beyond our obedience. We certainly don't want that to be the case here. So I don't teach on the doctrine of God tonight so you can be just educated but biblically, we believe and see in the scriptures, if you know something, it can't help but impact the way you live. Is that right? Amen? 
If you really know and believe something, God says it will infiltrate your life. It will affect the way you live. So we teach tonight on the root, and then next week again on the root again, and then on the fruit. But we don't want you to get the idea. I don't want you to get the idea that uh, this doesn't have practical implications in the way you live. I'm going to be honest with you. I struggled a little bit this week putting this together. Uh, I was with uh, Levi in Israel this summer when it was 120 degrees, and and uh, we've reflected also on Psalm 42, one of my favorites, where it says, "As the deer has panteth for the water, or as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God, in a dry and weary place." And that brought a whole new meaning. See, I was raised in the mountains, in the evergreens, and there's deer running around everywhere, but if they're thirsty, they can just go to a little brook there and drink. Not over there. But I'll confess to you tonight, my heart doesn't always thirst for God that way. And in fact, as I put this together, I struggled. Because I didn't thirst this week for God in the way that I wanted to. And I was reading this morning in Valley of Vision, and we've talked about that recently, that old Puritan prayer book. Uh, Thomas Watson and, and so many others, great prayers in there. And it, one of the prayers just talked about how, uh, Lord, I'm so grateful that my feelings don't dictate or uh, determine my relationship with you. I'm grateful for that this evening. So I reflect on this week and struggle thinking about uh, these powerful things that we're about to study and who is God. I'm grateful that my feelings don't dictate my relationship with God. Does that make sense? Any identify with that? I want to thirst after God every moment of every day, but the reality is I don't always. And I know some of you come here tonight thirsty. And some of you sing that song in spirit and in truth. And others of us had to pray that song and ask that God would make those things true of our life. Amen? Yeah. What a wonderful thing to study tonight together, the doctrine of God. But before we do that, I'd like to pray. We just pray that God would give us an appetite, a thirsting for Him. And even if we don't, we rejoice that our feelings don't dictate our relationship. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much, so much for a chance to gather together. Thank you so much for uh, what is part of the body here and that we can fellowship, that we can break bread and eat together, that we can sing together. We continue in worship. Lord, we don't just worship when we sing or when we pray or when we teach, but we live lives of worship or we ought to and we want to. And you know, Lord, you know my prayers before I even pray them, but just as I've confessed now, I don't always thirst for you as the deer does in a dry and weary place, and I want to. Lord, may the things we study tonight about you be enough to motivate us for a lifetime. Father, thank you so much that uh, you, your word says you're the rock, you're the solid foundation. Thank you that I'm no foundation at all. I'm shaky and... Uh, Lord, thank you that you are the solid foundation. You are the rock and your word is perfect. All your ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. without injustice. We're so grateful that you're upright and perfect. Help us to delight in that together tonight as we study your word. Lord, fill me with your spirit now as we learn about you and as I teach these things about you. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
praise God for getting to be here and for his word. Andy, did you get me the stool here tonight? You know I was sore and I needed to sit down. <laughs> His quads are sore. Um, we've separated the, the root weeks, the doctrine weeks, into two things. God's communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. And I know some of you guys are familiar with those terms. Some of you guys aren't. Communicable attributes are the things that he communicates or that he shares more with us. Actually, sorry, the sheets. Yes, thank you, Andy. <laughs> the sheets. There's four of you guys with sheets, and you guys are going to get some handouts so you can follow along with me. Because once I get going, I go, and uh, I want you guys to have something to follow along with me. So if you guys could help pass those out, that'd be great. As they do that, I'll explain uh, one of the first things on your sheets talks about the, the difference between God's communicable attributes, which I'll teach on this week, and the incommunicable attributes that Andy will teach on next week. Now, it's not a perfect division. Uh, it's not an absolute division, but it is a helpful division. It does help us to think. There is some overlapping, so it's not a perfect thing, but I think it's helpful to separate these two things as we study this week. Uh, We cannot say everything we want to in two weeks. Certainly not. We can't say everything about God that we want to in a lifetime, but certainly not in two weeks of 50-minute teaching times. But we're going to try to express as much as we can about God, and and you guys all have these sheets to take home. I hope this induces in you want to dive into God's Word and to study more about Him yourself. Okay, this should be a supplement to what you're already doing. That's why we spent two weeks on prayer and two weeks on reading. And as you get those sheets, as I always say, don't just thumb all the way through them. Stay with me, and I'll go through them with you. But this should be a supplement. So as you get those sheets, look at those verses. Take those home and read them. Study them. Learn more about your, your Heavenly Father, what tremendous Father we worship. However, you didn't just come here tonight to hear about terms, communicable and incommunicable. Um, they're helpful words, but don't get caught up in the language. Get caught up in who God is. Become infatuated with who God is, what he reveals about himself in Scripture tonight. God and the Godhead are perfectly united. Perfect unity. And and all too often I see people try and parse and part and parcel out God. Say this attribute and this attribute. And I'm going to sound a little bit hypocritical because I'm going to do that tonight. But I'm going to ask you to stay with me in the whole and remember that God can't be divided out. Uh, one of the things we see so often is that people uh, overemphasize one attribute and, or, or place one higher than another, or get confused and say, well, he's a God of love, but so that must minimize his wrath or that those things somehow war against each other instead of complement each other. We see that that's not true as we look at uh, Scripture. You see on their sheet there, uh, God's attributes are not isolated traits of his character, but facets of his unitary being. They are not things in themselves, They are rather thoughts by which we think of God, aspects of a perfect whole, names given to whatever we know to be true of the Godhead. If God is self-existent, he must be self-sufficient. If he has power, he must have infinite power because he's an infinite God. Does that make sense? One attribute runs alongside of another and they complement each other. Uh, Too often we see God torn between his justice and his mercy or his love and his wrath. We must realize that these things aren't at all mutually exclusive. We don't have one without the other. Rather, one complements another. He is not. He is not separate. He is not divisible. And we must work hard to wash our minds in the Word, in God's Word, and to entertain correct, pure, and true, noble thoughts about who God really is. Right thoughts about God. 
Without a doubt, without a doubt, A.W. Tozer says, the mightiest thought that the mind can entertain is the thought of God, and the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. What a quote, huh? What a word. The weightiest word in any language is its word for God, and the mightiest thought that any mind can entertain is the thought of God. Oh, to sit and think of God. Now, I, I brought with me tonight... Uh, this is partly a disclaimer. From here on out, everything that I say probably won't be, I'll probably just be quoting somebody. Uh, books that I used, I, I just do this so you don't think that I came up with these things. Uh, Value Vision, I've taken a lot of stuff through. Uh, Karnak, The Existence and Attributes of God, uh, a great resource. Um, you'll hear a lot of stuff from here. Uh, this book helped change the way I think about God, helped direct me biblically. Um, is everything in here perfect? No, but it's a great resource. Uh, One True God, Paul Washer, tremendous. It's more of a study guide than it is a book. just contains a lot of verses. And then uh, especially the Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. These have been really helpful <laughs> resources. see a lot of you people shaking your head. You've been in those some. Um, if you want to study God and, and who he is uh, without entirely systematizing him, but look in those things. Those are are great resources and so a lot of what I say comes from those I appreciate Tozer's work on the subject and that'll be reflected tonight I feel like it's so devotional to me as I read his work I'm just I'm caught up in uh, how God enabled him to articulate about himself beautiful thoughts and things that I just I I can't think up (laughs) and so I'm grateful for his work and others Frederick W. Faber says this only to sit and think of God Oh, what a joy it is to think the thought, to breathe the name. Earth has no higher bliss. Do you feel that way? Earth has no higher bliss than to sit and think the thought, to breathe the name. We're in a lifestyle that is so just go, go, go. How do we just sit and think? I hope tonight we sit and think on who God is. Oh, to think the thought. What a joy it is to sit and think of God, to think the thought, to breathe the name. I hope to spur on, like I said, further thought, further research on your own time. So we'll just, it'll be a survey in a way to equip you who are the saints to do the work of the ministry on campus, in the church, in the community, in the workplace. Be a survey of who God is tonight. The first thing I want to talk about with you is is truthfulness. God's truthfulness. God's truthfulness, (coughs) excuse me, means that he is the true God and that all knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. This is clearly relevant in a time of postmodernism and uh, where truth is just thrown about and tossed in the wind and the waves. What is truth? And what is truthfulness? God says he is truth. Jeremiah 10, 10 through 11. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. He says all false gods, all small g gods, they'll perish. They'll waste away. But the true God, he will remain. He has been. He always will be. John seventeen three, Jesus says this, And this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's in Jesus' high priestly prayer, and we see this is, this is it. This is the true God. This is eternal life that you may know. Who? The only true God. 
Not some figment of our imagination, not some pie in the sky, the true God. God is a God of truthfulness. 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. So that we may know Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God. He is the true God and eternal life. He is everything that the true God should be. But who are we as, whom, <laughs> who are we as humans to say who God should be? You ever think about that? Why can we as humans practically define Him? It seems like we could make him out to be any sort of God we would want him to be. Therefore, God himself has given us the perfect definition in himself. He's given us truth, and he said he is the true God, and he's implanted in our minds reality of the truth, and in his word, the truth about who he is, the true God. This is also to affirm that God's knowledge is true and is the final standard of truth. In Job thirty-seven sixteen, we read this, God is perfect in knowledge. He's perfect in knowledge. He must be perfect in knowledge. If he's perfect, one of his, one of his uh, attributes is knowledge and perfection, and so it only makes sense that he would be perfect in knowledge. Also included in this reality is that God's words are true and reliable, which means that he is unable to lie. We see this all over in Scripture. Titus 1-2, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Psalm 12.6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Listen to this. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You know what that means? That's seven times that symbology of perfection. God's words are perfect. He cannot lie. Psalm 139.17, we should exclaim with the psalmist, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Martin Luther wrote this. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. God is a God of truthfulness. He is also a God of faithfulness. This means that God, this is number two on your sheet, this means that God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. God is a God of faithfulness. This, indeed, this idea comes from the Hebrew word amen and the Greek word pistos and communicates the idea of certainty or stability God is faithful, He is stable, He is certain. He is a certain God, a stable God. It implies He is worthy of absolute trust. Absolute trust, like the strong arms of a father. This is what it made me think of. The strong arms of a father lifting his son above danger. He's worthy of trust. He's a pillar of truth and faithfulness. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will it, and will he not do it, or has spoken, and will f- not fulfill it? God always fulfills what he speaks. Remember I shared with you a couple weeks ago, one of my professors here was real vulnerable. He talked about in Bible college class how he'd said, uh, what if God doesn't keep his promise, or his command, or his covenant? I forget exactly how he said it. He said that, the professor was snappy back at him, and not in a bad way, but right back. He said, there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence of God not being true, of him being faithful. Everything in Scripture implies that he is indeed true and faithful. Second uh, Samuel 7.28, And now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Your words are true, God. You are a God of truth, of faithfulness. And so I believe what you say. 
I believe what you say, and I believe that because you're faithful, and you'll bring it to pass. Indeed, the essence of true faith is taking God at his word and relying on him to do as he's promised. That's what faith is, right? I'm going to cast myself on God and his words, and what he says, I trust. If he says that's true, I trust it. If I read that, I believe it's true. He's a God of truthfulness, of faithfulness. Men and women become unfaithful out of desire or fear or weakness or loss of interest or because of some strong influence from without. God cannot be influenced from without, from the outside, from without. God cannot be compelled that way. None of these forces affect Him. Therefore, God is always faithful. God is always faithful. Upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as He is faithful will His covenant stand and His promises be honored. Only as we have complete assurance that He is faithful may we live in peace and look forward with assurance to the life to come. I take great pleasure. I myself take great pleasure in God's faithfulness, for in it I know I can count on His promises. It is such a reassuring thing to know that my salvation does not count or rest in myself. It rests in a God of faithfulness. And if He says it, I believe it. He is a God of truthfulness, faithfulness, and three, love. To speak briefly on any of these things is a, is a tragedy. It's a hard thing just to kind of have a survey here and there. It's an unfortunate we can't do a more extensive job, but that's your job is to dig in here deeper. God has spoken many ways in Scripture, but on the rare occasion when it says God is something, we we'll have to listen especially closely. And that's, of course, what we see in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. We're familiar with this passage, and we ought to be. What a magnificent truth. God is love. God's love means that God is eternally giving of himself, or eternally gives of himself to others. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13, 11 tells us he is a God of love. His love disposes himself to desire our everlasting welfare, and his sovereignty enables him to secure it. Let me say that again. His love disposes us to desire our everlasting well-being, that is our good, and his sovereignty ensures that he is able to keep it. It enables him to keep it. What a beautiful thing. Perhaps the best definition is found penned by God himself through the Apostle John. We read this in 1 John four, ten. This is love, not that we love God. No, not that I somehow mustered up love for God. This is love, not that I loved God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, sent his son to be the propitiation or the substitution or the atonement for our sins. This definition focuses on the self-giving aspect of God's love. God gave of himself. He sacrificed his son. This is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. We don't know love except for a part or except for of God. We think of verses like Romans 5, 8. God showed his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. We think of verses like John 15, 9. Anybody remember this from this last weekend? I don't know one, one thing I took away from this last weekend. You know how many times I've read John 15 and I read verse 9 and I went, what is this? <laughs> Do you ever have those moments where you're reading and you go, Lord, what is this? What beauty is this? Is this really a promise? Is this really a true thing? It must be. Listen to what it says. As the Father has loved me, 
So I have loved you. Abide in my love. You get that? Now for all of eternity's past, the Trinity in perfect harmony and perfect love and perfect fullness. Don't ever let anyone tell you that God created us because he got bored. Okay? Could not be farther from the truth. God created us for his glory. And I'm glad he did. I'm glad he chose to save us. But God has loved his son perfectly for all eternity's past. And his son has loved the father for all of eternity's past. And we read this in John 15, 9. Just as the father loved me, so I also loved you. Abide in my love. Whoa. That's love. What sort of love is this? Unconditional, unspeakable love for his children. Magnificent love. Beautiful love. Zephaniah 3.17, one of my favorite verses. You'll see why. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one, or some versions read, a mighty warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Some versions say he will exult over you with, with shouts of joy. What a thing to think that God could take pleasure in someone like myself because I've been redeemed, because I've been washed in the blood. Wow. This is love. But we see other places in Scripture where God directly calls himself something. One of those, as you know, is holiness. The fourth thing, God is holy. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. And where to start, but perhaps the most notable chapter in the Bible on holiness, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Kind of in the middle of your Bible, after Psalm, Psalms, the major prophets, Isaiah, and go to chapter 6. I'm just going to read this to you guys, but I'd love it if you'd follow along with me. <clears throat> In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, or sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two covering his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and with one, and one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke, then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. He saw the train of his robe filling the temple. What a Lord. What a God. What a holy king. This Godhead. I remember I was, gonna be, I was beginning to take a class. on. Uh, this was on Christology, on the things of Christ. And the professor opened the class talking about how does knowing more about Christ, uh, how did he say it? I don't remember exactly. I said, does knowing Christ induce more worship 
of him? And the answer to that, I think, at least in part, is yes. But he made a case for it also being no. He said these angels know fully God and they see fully God, but they cover their, their eyes and their feet. And for all of eternity, they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They see the seraphims, the most holy of angels, or the most splendid of angels, crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Who is this God? He is a holy God, entirely separate, entirely unique. He is a God of holiness, of holiness. Turn with me to Psalm 99. Turn back in your Bibles a little bit. Look with me at Psalm 99. And look at verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. And we see verse 6, 7, 8. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. We think of Nahum 1, 3 where he writes... He's a patient God. He's a God of long suffering, but that patience will eventually be extinguished. He will not let sin go unpunished. An avenger of their evil deeds. But now look at verse nine. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill for holy, holy is the Lord our God. He is a God of holiness, infinite holiness. Psalm 22, three, we read this. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Awe-inspiring Our God is totally separate and immeasurably different. In chapter 14 of Zechariah, we see that he prophesies in a day where everything on earth will be holy to the Lord. Verse 20 and 21, I'll read them to you. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altars. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of sacrifices in them. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts that day. One day everything will be consecrated, holy, and set apart to the Lord, even the pots and pans, even the most menial things. What a treasure. What a beautiful thing to think about. I look forward to that day. I hope you do too. Matthew 5.48 Reminds us, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is separated and transcendent. He is above his creation and its corruption. The most splendid angel stands in the presence of God is no more like, truly like God, than the smallest worm that crawls upon the earth. Have you ever thought of that? The seraphims that stand in the presence of God are no more truly like God than the smallest worm that crawls on the earth. There is none like our God. None. He is totally separate. He is a God set apart. He is holy. He is holy. First Peter 1.16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. First John 1.5, This is the message we heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. Some of you guys were around this summer when Andy taught on this. He turned out all the lights. Or maybe some of you were at the barbecue where uh, Deontay talked about this. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. No darkness. And God, listen to this, God has called to imitate, called us, His children, to imitate His holiness. 
If someone asks you if you know someone but you don't know them, you might say, "Oh, he's he's like this person, or he's he acts like this person, or he's." Uh, reminds me of this person. You can't do that with God. Do you realize that? You can't do that with God except for this. He said, I'm the God unseeable, but if you want to see me, look at Christ. Look at my son. Look at my son. God has displayed himself wholly in Christ. God is only pictured perfectly in Christ. God is holy I want to take some time now to talk to you about some attributes that uh, might challenge you to think about God in ways that you don't normally do. Attributes that when God first comes to mind, maybe these don't ring uh, top in priority. These have challenged me to think more biblically, more clearly about God. The first of these is peace. Peace or order. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says this. Paul says, uh, Paul writing here, he says, God is not of God of confusion, but a God of peace a God of order, if you will. He's a God of peace in contrast to disorder or chaos. God is a God of peace. Romans 15.33 says this, May the God of all peace be with you. Amen. And Romans 16.20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. God is a God of peace and order, but we must be careful to think correctly about this. This does not imply that God is inactive. It's not to imply that God is sleeping. Uh, Psalms 121.4, God neither sleeps nor slumbers. John 5.17 says God is continually working. This isn't a piece of inactivity or, or of apathy or of nothing happening. This is an active piece. We see that the God says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God is active. Philippians 4.9, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Hebrews 13.20 Now may the God of peace, the God of peace, who brought you again from dead, from the dead, and our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of his sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Isaiah 55.12 promises that God will bring his people forth in peace. God is a God of peace, and God's peace means that in God, in God's being and in his actions, he is separate from all confusion and disorder. Yet he is continually active in, a, in innumerable, well-ordered, fully controlled, and simultaneous actions. God is working everywhere. But he is entirely separate from confusion and disorder. Are you tracking with me still? Stay with me. This next one's wonderful as well. God is a God of beauty. God is a God of beauty. Do you ever think about this? God's beauty is that attribute by where He is the sum of all desirable qualities. Let me say that again. God's beauty is the attribute of God whereby He is the sum of all desirable qualities. This differs from His attribute of perfection in that uh, perfection is defined in such a way that perfection shows Him not lacking anything, but beauty shows Him fully having everything. It's stated in the positive. God contains everything that is entirely desirable. God is beautiful. God is a God of beauty. Perhaps I'm drawn to this truth uh, in that it encapsulates one of my favorite verses. And David writes this. Uh, maybe if you'd even pick up your Bibles and turn here with me. David writes this in Psalms. In Psalms 27. 
think, how can you not just, how can your not, heart just not cry out when you read verses like this for God? David writes this about the God of beauty. Verse 4, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. David says one thing, one thing I've asked. I just want to be with the Lord. I just want to meditate in his temple. I want to behold his beauty. What a request. It goes further in verse 80, writes this. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. You don't want to see David rising up. Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. I will seek your face. You are a God of beauty. Beauty is entirely desirable. Psalm 73, 25 says this, Whom have I in heaven, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? Can you say that? Man, may that letter be our prayer. May that be our prayer. There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Someone has said the greatest blessing of the heavenly city shall be this. Revelations 22.4, that they see his face. Why is heaven so good? Because God is there. That's why heaven's good. Nate and I, my roommate, a uh, gentleman who did announcements last night, we were talking and talking about just the, uh, the kind of the world we live in, the good, the bad, the ugly, <laughs> and uh, how easy it is to communicate in ways that aren't face-to-face, Right? And he mentioned letter writing has been around for a long time. There's always a capability to communicate without being face-to-face. But now we can text and I am and email and tweet and all kinds of stuff, and we can't be face-to-face. And there's a reluctance in our generation to be face-to-face. It's almost an intimidation, a drawing back about it. But why is it so good? God says one day we'll be face-to-face with him. And there's nothing better in heaven than seeing God, than knowing God, than worshiping perfectly as he is. It says on this side we see dimly. It's like we look through stained glass. But on the other side, oh, just to see his face, right? God is a God of beauty. And our cousin wrote it pretty good, I think. I've drawn deep from the words of her old hymn called The Sands of Time Are Sinking, where she writes this, The bride's eyes are not on her garment, or the bride's eyes not on her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Why is heaven good? Because God is there, and God is immeasurably more beautiful than we could understand. This is indeed why, in part, Paul writes to the wives in the churches that they ought to have their adornment, that is, their outward beauty, their adornment, ought not to be in uh, costly pearls or jewels, but it ought to be this, in the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That is beauty, God says. Not in outward adornment, but in the inward spirit. He writes the wise specifically, says the jewel of a, 
of a gentle and quiet spirit. Titus 2.10 says, Adorn yourselves or beautify yourselves with the doctrine of God our Savior. Neat language, isn't it? This isn't a beauty that you think of when you first... This isn't a beauty of Vogue magazine. This is the beauty of the God of the Bible. Immeasurable beauty. This is beauty of purity, holiness, truth, power, compassion. God is a God of beauty. Last thing I want to talk about with you is God's glory. God is a God of glory. In the simplest sense, the word glory means this, honor or excellent reputation. In Isaiah 43, 7, we read this. He created his children for his glory. Remember I talked about earlier, don't let everyone, anyone ever tell you God got bored all of a sudden and he created us. Isaiah says he created us, why? For his glory. And we're reminded in Romans 3, 23 that all have fallen short of God's excellent reputation, of his honor, of his perfection. And thereby we've sinned. God is a God of glory. Hebrews 1, 3 says this, Christ is the radiance of his glory. Remember I said God, no one, the word says no one has ever seen God. If we see God, we would die. But God points to Christ and says, look, he says there is the radiance of my glory. God of glory and there's the radiance of my glory. God's glory is the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. God's glory is something that belongs to him alone. And is the appropriate outward expression of his own excellence. God is a God of excellence. It's the appropriate expression of his excellence. This is glory. God is a God of glory. Of glory. Of glory. The question asked in Psalms 24.10 is this. Who is the king of glory? Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. He answers back. The Lord. The king of hosts. He is the king of glory. The King of Glory. One of the most remarkable places in scriptures is surely Revelations 21, 23. Why don't you turn there with me? Book of Revelation, not Revelations. Several books after Genesis and right after Exodus. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Revelation. I think is how. <laughs> so funny. Revelation chapter 21. Sorry. Chapter 21. 21, 23. Lord, take our focus off of ourselves and on you. 21, 23. And the city has no need of the sun or moon or to shine on it, for the God or for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Heaven doesn't need a sun or a moon. Why? Because God's there. What a thing is this. I recall this and I just think, unbelievable, right? (laughs) I had you turn to this because maybe you want to mark this in your Bible. This is unbelievable. In heaven there'll be no need for sun because the glory of God has illuminated it. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of the excellence of of God's character. What an amazing thing to think God makes us to reflect his glory. You ever think about that? 
Second Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this, we are changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. We are his image bearers, so it only makes sense that God would shine through us. What do we make of all this? Well, hopefully it's practically realigning and it causes us to worship God. We gather here Friday nights to worship. That's what we're here to do. We worship through fellowship out in the hall, even that board. We laugh and we rejoice, but we worship God out there. We come in here and we worship God. We pray and we worship God. And we're going to leave tonight and you'll go out there and worship God some more. You worship God while you visit with people and you'll go home and go to sleep and you'll worship God. Hopefully as you learn more about God, you just want to worship Him more. And you worship Him more accurately because you know Him better. I think about this and I think as you come to know someone better, you always either appreciate them more or less, don't you? Think about that. Right? <laughs> Think of people in your lives and don't think too long about it. But as you get to know someone better, you either love them, you either like them more, <laughs> or you tend to like them less. You either tend to be more attracted to their personality, to their being, or less. And I hope it's that way with God. I hope as you come to know Him more, are you listening? Stick with me. I hope as you know God more, I hope as you leave here and learn more about God tonight, you grow to worship Him more. And you love Him more because of what you learned. There's many more we could speak on. God's loving kindness, His compassion, His grace, His long-suffering, His love, His omniscience, His wrath, His knowledge. The list goes on and on and on. But I... I that's all we can get to tonight. Go, study, think on these things. Think about God. Oh, to think the thought, to breathe the name. Earth knows no greater bliss. I'll read to you something again from Tozer. I think it might be demonstrated that almost every heresy that has afflicted the church throughout the years has arisen from believing about God things that are not true or from overemphasizing certain true things that are not true or from overemphasizing certain true things so as to obscure other things that are equally true. I hope that's not true tonight. I hope that's not true in your own life. And I hate the word balance, by the way. <laughs> Some of you guys know that. I, I think there's, I should be careful. There's times where you can use the word balance, but I don't think now with God. We don't balance God's holiness and His justice. God is fully holy. He is fully love. He is fully truth. He is fully knowledge. He is equally all these things. He is perfectly all these things. God is a God of perfection, and there's just not words big enough for God. He's just not given us words on this side of eternity big enough for Him. Listen again, as Tozer remarks, how completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. Amen? How completely satisfying to turn from my limitations to a God who has no limitations. In conclusion, I want to read to you some of the names of God, some of the compound names of God, just so you can recall these things. And these are on your sheet as well in summary form. You guys all know the word Yahweh, or I am that I am. Yahweh, Sabbath, Sabbath. God as the omnipotent king and warrior who rules and protects his people. Yahweh Elon, Elion speaks of his sovereignty and, and exaltation and majesty. This is to say that God is over all. 
Yahweh Jireh. This was given by Abraham as he was to place his own son on the altar and God provided. It is ultimately a promise of redemption from sin, not primarily economic provision, and it implies a provision of a sacrifice from God. God will provide. God has provided. God will provide. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my standard. He is our banner. Our victory is sure in the Lord. Yahweh Quadesh, the Lord that sanctifies. God separates his people from the rest of the people of the earth for his service. Yahweh Ra, the Lord is my shepherd. Every pastor of a local church is just an under-shepherd. He's just a local pastor. God is the ultimate pastor. He is the shepherd. He is the shepherd. He feeds his people. He loves his people. He pastors his people. He feeds them. He guides them. He guards them and protects them from enemies. God is the ultimate pastor. He is the ultimate shepherd. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord your healer. He can heal from the mortal illness of sin. And if it pleases him, he can even heal from temporal sickness. What a great testimony from Adam tonight. Sometimes God chooses to heal immediately. And sometimes he doesn't. Dan, others of you can testify to that. Sometimes God, for whatever reason, chooses to leave us or even to extinguish our life. He doesn't always choose to heal, but he can. God is the God, our healer. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. The grace of God changes uh, what should be terror to peace. Jesus is our ultimate peace. God is God of peace. Yahweh Samah, the Lord is here or personally present. He, is, he was and is fur, fully personally present in the person of Christ. And he is presently present in the Holy Spirit. Yahweh Tzid Kenu, I think is how you say that. <laughs> the Lord, our righteousness. He both saves us in righteousness and rules over us with righteousness or with justice. This is the God we worship. Do you worship this God? I know, I just, I don't know everybody here tonight. I wish I did, but I know that chances are not everybody here worships this God. Do you worship this God? Do you know this God? This God of the Bible, this God of truth, truth, the faithfulness of love, of glory, of beauty, of purity, of holiness. This God, Psalms 37, 5 through 6, commit your ways to the Lord and trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. A right view of God is life-giving, and hopefully it's practically realigning. I hope this is a realigning thing for you tonight. Wash your minds in the Word. Take great pleasure in reading about God. Next week we'll talk about God's incommunicable attributes. Andy will teach us on that. Until then, wash your mind in the word. Wash your mind with the pleasantries, with the beauty of who God is and what he says about himself. Take some time tonight to rejoice in your right views of God and take some time tonight to repent of low views of God. We have to think of God rightly. And if you haven't done that, you ought to repent. Many times I've had to ask, Lord, realign my view of you. Help me think biblically about you. What a king. What a Lord. What a God we serve. Why don't you take some time? We'll pray together. Why don't you bow your heads and take some time just to reflect. Do you think of God as you ought to think of God? Do you think of him as he is?
Take some time to rejoice if you do, to praise Him, to worship Him more. Take some time to repent if you don't. And take some time, if you're here tonight and you don't know God, you're an enemy of God, this God we've talked about. Repent of your sins. Turn to this God, whom Paul writes in his kindness draws you to repentance. He has waited long. He has suffered long in your sin against Him. Turn to Him tonight and repent for the first time. Take some time to think and worship. you wrap up your personal prayer time I'll close us in corporate prayer Heavenly Father thank you that you are everything that you say about yourself thank you that everything that you say about yourself is true that you are a God of peace of holiness of truthfulness of faithfulness of beauty of peace of all these things and infinitely more there's just not words is there Lord help us to worship you well help us to help us to be realigned Lord I I repent of my own low views of you often manifest in mistrust or different things Lord I repent of those help me to worship you as you ought to be worshipped at least as well as I can on this side And Father, oh, how I look forward, how all of us here ought to look forward, who are believers to the other side, where there'll be no need for sun or moon, but your glory will illuminate heaven. I can't wait, Lord. If you took me home tonight, I wouldn't shed a tear. But if you don't, Lord, help us to labor until you do take us home. I want to serve you well while we're here. Realign our view. Help us to worship you well tonight. We pray in the precious name of Christ. Amen.